On the small plates, Nephi left out many personal details. But he did find space to record chapter after chapter many of the words of Isaiah. Why? Let's look between the lines. This is Between the Lines of the Book of Mormon, and we're your hosts. I'm Jay Harris. And I'm Andrew Harris. And we welcome you to this podcast today. When Nephi decided to record the words of Isaiah, this wasn't a simple process. He wasn't able to just sit down and write with a fountain pen onto a piece of paper. This was tedious work. He had to engrave each word of Isaiah onto his metal plates. Why would he take the time and effort to do that, especially when we know that the Nephite people already had these writings on the brass plates? Well, he tells us why in verse 2 of chapter 11. He says, My soul delighteth in his words, for I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth unto all my children. So he loved the words. He thought that they were words that could be likened to his people. And I think they can be likened to us too. And then he also said, I want my children to have them. You know, they had those words, but those were written in Egyptian, right? In the first chapter of Mosiah, King Mosiah explained to his sons the importance of the brass plates. He told his sons that without the brass plates, Father Lehi would not have been able to teach his children the truths of the gospel. King Mosiah said, speaking of Lehi in verse 4, having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, therefore he could read these engravings and teach them to his children. So, we understand that the brass plates, which contain the writings of the prophet Isaiah, were written in Egyptian, and most of the Nephites at that time couldn't read Egyptian. Yeah. Now, returning to the reason Nephi rewrote the teachings of Isaiah, he wasn't just copying the words of Isaiah from the brass plates onto his own set of plates. Reading between the lines, he was translating the words of Isaiah from Egyptian to a language that was much more easily understood by his descendants. Yeah. I understand that Nephi loved the words of Isaiah. And why did he love the words of Isaiah so much? One of the reasons he tells us is that he had seen the Redeemer the way Nephi had and his brother Jacob had. Can I read that here? Yeah, verse 3. And my brother Jacob also has seen him as I have seen him. Wherefore I will send their words forth unto my children to prove unto them that my words are true. Wherefore, by the words of three, Nephi, Jacob, Isaiah, God hath said, I will establish my word. And so he knew that Isaiah had talked with the Lord and received knowledge and guidance directly from Jehovah. And I don't think it hurts to understand that Isaiah, to him, was not an ancient prophet. This is a man who had lived just in the previous generation. And so to Nephi and to Lehi, Isaiah was a modern prophet. That's one of the reasons that he loved the words of Isaiah and that he's taking the time to write this. He said in verse 4, My soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. And I like verse 5 as well. He says, Also my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord which he hath made to our fathers. 
So he just loves Christ and God and, and all their justice and their mercy and their covenants that they've made to the people. And so he sees all these things in the writings of Isaiah. So he wants to share those with us. In order to study these chapters properly, we have to understand a little bit about what Isaiah was doing. Basically, he repeats three topics over and over again. The first topic is that God has made a covenant with the people of the house of Israel. That was important to Nephi because his people were descendants of Israel. They were of the house of Israel. They were through the tribe of Joseph. So these covenants which God had made didn't only apply to the Jews, it also applied to the Nephites and the Lamanites and those who were on this continent. Isaiah also spoke about the coming of Christ, and he described over and over again this important event that would take place in the history of the world. He then prophesied about the falling away of Israel, and throughout the writings of Isaiah, over and over again, he calls the people to repentance, and he even says they would be destroyed and cut off, and their relationship with God would be terminated. But the day will come when the house of Israel would be returned, and that the Lord would remember these covenants that he had made anciently, and restore those to the converted house of Israel. Yeah. So it's kind of a metaphor for all of us individually, too. We all sin. We all fall. We fall short of perfection, obviously. And as we reject God or sin, we're like the house of Israel. We also all have the ability to repent and come back to God. And he's willing to accept us and receive us again if we do that. Let's go through then chapter by chapter. In chapter 11, Nephi tells us why he's writing these things. In chapter 12, he begins quoting from Isaiah. One of the very first things that he says is a prophecy about the last days. It's about how the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in the top of the mountains, which I think is a beautiful phrase and a beautiful imagery that reminds me of the temple in the top of the mountains, the Salt Lake Temple specifically but all the temples really that are built in the latter days. To the ancient Israelites, the top of the mountains was where you went to talk to God and to get inspiration from God. And that's what they refer to as the temple. When they talked about the temple in Jerusalem, they would often talk about going up to the mountain of the Lord. And today, in our case, we go to the temple that's in mountains oftentimes, but we go up and we learn, and that's where we learn how to walk in his paths and learn his ways. And that's in verse 3 of chapter 12. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And why do they go? He'll teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Yeah, which kind of leads us back to when we were talking about Lehi's dream. He talked about a path in his dream as well. And I think it's the same path. It's that covenant path that we want to walk on so that we can get to the tree of life and we can get to God. This is how we learn how to do that is through the temple. It teaches us the covenants that we need to make so that we can return to our Heavenly Father. And we walk along that path hanging on to the rod of iron. But also in verse 5, he says, O house of Jacob, come ye and let us Walk in the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord is a symbol of the Spirit that guides us as we walk. If we are on our own, if we just want to stumble around in the dark, 
we're going to get hurt. I mean, stub your toe <laughs> or bump your shins into things, you know, as you're walking around in the dark. But if you have a light that leads you, you're not going to fall. You're going to be able to see clearly and make it to where you're your destination is. And so he's saying, come on, guys, come and walk in the light of the Lord. For all of you have gone astray and everyone to his wicked ways. Isaiah then returns back to calling the people to repentance, which was a common topic that he had. And he says, oh, ye wicked ones, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for the fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty shall smite thee. That's in verse 10. I mean, we can interpret that as just, you know, hide in the caves and cover yourself with dust or something so that God doesn't see you. But sometimes we refer to Christ as the rock. And if we think of it in that way, we can come unto Christ and he'll protect us from that destruction that would otherwise come our way. In chapter 13, Isaiah continues on with his call of repentance to the people and looking into the future. And he sees our day and he says, the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. I think we see that a lot in our day. People who reject the wisdom of the past. And the children of today who reject the teachings of their parents. And in verse 9 it says, they have rewarded evil unto themselves. I mean, they have all these bad things that are going to happen to them and that, that he describes happening to them in these, these chapters. But they're all these things that they brought upon themselves because of their wickedness. Chapter 15 is a long one, and he goes into an analogy of a vineyard. He has this vineyard that's beautiful that he hopes will bring beautiful fruit, but instead it grows wild fruit. As we sometimes read the words of Isaiah, we think that he is really difficult to understand. Why, for example, is Isaiah talking about a vineyard? Well, so we don't misunderstand what he's talking about, Isaiah, in this case, tells us exactly what he's referring to. In verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. When Isaiah refers to the vineyard, he's talking about the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. The descendants of Israel, in other words, the men of Judah, are compared to the grapevines, which are producing bad fruit. And he wanted them to bring forth good fruit, and instead they, they brought forth wild fruit. And then he says, And he looked for judgment. He wanted them to be wise and make good decisions. And behold, oppression. Not at all what he'd hoped for. He looked for righteousness. But behold, a cry. Part of that, I think, he might be referring literally to the captivity of the, the people when they are taken by the Babylonians or the Assyrians and they're oppressed and they have captivity. But I think more importantly, he's also talking about the captivity of the devil and the oppression that they get from that. We know that we can either choose freedom through righteousness and following Christ, or we can choose captivity through following the devil and, and through sin. These people had the covenant of the Lord and with his guidance it could have been so great, and instead they chose wickedness, and that led to them being taken over by the Babylonians, for their city to be destroyed, the temple was burned to the ground, not because God willed that, but because they brought it upon themselves. So instead of righteousness, they brought oppression upon themselves. And then he says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet 
for bitter. Boy, does that sound like today. Yeah. Do we see that over and over again in so many aspects of our society that call wickedness good. This is a good thing to do. And call good, oh, that's foolishness and that's a waste of time. Yeah. It's really sad because it seems so obvious. Today, we have a lot of people who seem confused. They do. They believe that bad things are good or good things are bad. And then, speaking of the house of Israel, Isaiah says in chapter 15, verse 25, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them. You know, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in some of the nations of the world today. And this may also be true of any of us who have made covenants with God and then have failed to live up to our commitments to Him. But to all those who are suffering, all is not lost. And this is the message of hope that Isaiah writes to us about. He says that after the Lord's anger is kindled against His people, something amazing will happen. In verse 26, he says, And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary, nor stumble among them. None shall slumber, nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. In the last days, God will set up an ensign to the nations. That ensign is his church and kingdom. God will invite the house of Israel to again partake of the blessings of the gospel. When Christ comes again, will the house of Israel accept him this time? They'll not just come, but they'll run swiftly to him and not sleep until they have renewed their eternal covenants with him again. That will be such an exciting day. It really will. Now, turning to chapter 16, Isaiah describes a life-changing experience that he had. He describes a heavenly vision opened to his eyes where he had the opportunity to not just see God, but to stand in his presence. He says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. In the Holy of Holies of the temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was between two large angels. It was what they called the mercy seat, where God would sit on his throne. We don't know exactly what the seraphim symbolize. There's angels around God, and they praise him. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Must have been a glorious sight. Isaiah felt completely unworthy to be there. He just realized, I'm in the presence of God, and I'm unclean. Woe is unto me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. His lips were not dirty because of things that he was taking into himself. His lips were unclean because of things that were coming out of his lips. Yeah, the lips were just a symbol for him. How true of all of us. We're usually not judged according to what we take into our mouths, but what comes out of our mouths. Yeah, I don't think it's because he was, like, eating dirt or something. It wasn't literal. It was symbolic. But what makes someone have unclean lips? It was the things that he had either said or the things that he had done that made him feel unworthy to be in God's presence. And then as he felt this shame. feeling of shame, then 
the angel reached down into the altar where there were hot coals ready for offering a sacrifice. He reached down with his hand and grabbed one of the hot coals and then went over to Isaiah and laid it upon his mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. And then with a powerful statement, And thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Yeah. The symbolism of the altar was where the sacrifices were performed. And that sacrifice was a symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he would make for us. And so it's fitting that this coal that would symbolize the sacrifice that Christ would make would be used to help cleanse him. He was saying, the Lord has sent me to let you know that you no longer have unclean lips. You are now cleansed and purified. Can you imagine the feeling that he had? Yeah. As that vision took place, that he realized that because of the Christ, he would be forgiven of all, that his sins would be removed and purged. So he had that joy from experiencing repentance and forgiveness. But he also had confidence now to know that he could go forth and say the things that he had to say because he was approved of God. That's right. And then Isaiah indicates how it is that the Lord can offer us forgiveness when our lips may be so unclean. Isaiah hints at a time long before when the Father held a special council in heaven. Isaiah repeats the words that were spoken at that time. In verse 8, Isaiah says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. It's almost a direct quote from in the pre-existence. We're there, and God presents this plan and says, Who shall I send? Who shall I send? And this is in Abraham chapter 3, verse 27. Isaiah does sometimes speak messianically, where he doesn't speak just from his own perspective, but he speaks from Jehovah's perspective. He then describes the people. You have to realize again, this was just a generation before Lehi, and the people were extremely wicked. They were on their way at this point to destruction. And within the next 150 years, they would be destroyed. And he says, the heart of this people is fat. What do you think of when you think of a fat heart? I think of someone who's going to have a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, someone who doesn't have a healthy heart, maybe, you know. And he says, their ears are heavy and their eyes are shut. This person doesn't sound too healthy. (laughs) So these people had hard hearts and blind eyes and deaf ears. Yeah. And he tried to teach them, but they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't be converted and be healed. And then he said, Lord, how long? How long will these people continue to reject the things that are promised to them? And he said, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. That's what's happened to the house of Israel. They have been rejected because of their wickedness and they have been cast off. And again, it sounds really desperate and awful, but Christ is forgiving. He doesn't want to cast us off and just have us in this desperate situation. And that's the beauty of Isaiah's teaching because he doesn't drop it there. But he goes on and talks about even though they're in this desolate and cast off place, they will return, they'll come back, and the Lord will accept them again. Yeah. In chapter 17, verse 14, he says, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And she didn't actually name Jesus Emmanuel. I mean, his name was Jesus, but I think it wasn't so much his name. It was what he would be. He would be God with us. And, and that's exactly what happened. Mary had a son, and it was the Son of God, and it was Jehovah with us. And speaking of the significance of names, in chapter 18, Isaiah has a son. And guess what name he gives his son? Meher Shalal Hashbaz. (laughs) (laughs) How would you feel if your dad gave you that name? (laughs) Yeah, I personally do not want to go by Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That's... (laughs) I, and I don't think it's just the, it's hard to say, it's the meaning of it too. It means, to speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. It's like, thanks dad. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine calling him to dinner? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, come to dinner. Oh, it's cold now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now finally in chapter 19, Isaiah gives us one of the most recited and well-recognized scriptures from the Bible. We're probably most familiar with this verse because it is repeated in George Frederick Handel's Messiah. The verse contains the most accurate and profound description of the coming Messiah. Isaiah wrote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, I could sing this for you if you'd like. (laughs) I don't know if the audience wants to hear that. (laughs) And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I love the fact that it says a child is born, unto us a son is given. We're given this gift. When you have a child of your own, you think of it as, oh, this is a gift that I was given, but this is a gift to the whole world. Isaiah writes the most beautiful prose. It's no wonder that many of Isaiah's verses are found both in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon. Thank you, Nephi, for re-emphasizing the importance of these beautiful verses. Thank you for listening to our feeble attempt at bringing the scriptures to life. We absolutely love studying the pages of the Book of Mormon. By way of interest, I have two daughters, Andrew's sisters, who are making a monthly podcast. It's called The Miracle Files, and it details the miraculous events that are occurring every day throughout the world. These stories will both thrill and inspire you. Next time, with this podcast, we'll rejoice with Isaiah about his prophecies concerning the last days. Please join us, and continue to enjoy your reading.